You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. One of the benefits of a weekend like this is that Peter and I were saying you get the opportunity to revisit topics uh, and in one sense soak uh, in the Word of God and come around to things. Um, And so in this interview, it it is the process of getting to know Peter and hear about um, God's faithfulness in his life and things that we can learn uh, for our lives as well. Um, Now, Peter, I I don't know, you probably, I'm not quite sure whether you remember this, but um, we actually first met... Um, in 2010, so that was 11 years ago, um, and yes, made a deep impression on me, so, uh, <laughs> uh, and I remember um, I was at a, another church at that point in time, and there was a Ridley Youth Training event, uh, and I brought a team along, and you were giving a workshop on Hebrews, and I went up after and I asked you, um, Peter, what is the one commentary on Hebrews that you most recommend? Uh, and you said, mine. Yes, no, that's right, that's right. Uh, and, um, it's a joke. <laughs> and then I asked you about how to make sense of the warning passages in Hebrews. Uh, and you were very kind. Uh, you said, here's my email, I'll send you an article on it, and why don't we catch up and talk about it? Sure, that was nice. It was very kind of you. It was very, very kind of you. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's sounding better. That's good. Yes, that's, that's right. That's right. And um, and since February 2010, you've been very kind in um, helping me along, think through questions, and and um, be somewhat of a mentor in ministry and life. You've done that for many people. Um, what? Why have you committed yourself to mentoring many young people in understanding the Bible and in gospel ministry? Yes. Well, I think there are two answers to that. Uh, One is that my father was a very remote father and not particularly interested in uh, the lives of his children and... Uh, I think I feel, I felt, I have felt that loss. I wish he'd been interested in what I was doing and talked to me about things and stuff like that. So it's partly to kind of, uh, having seen the lack of it, then thinking this is a thing worth doing. But also uh, the man who converted me, whom I met quite by accident, uh, I was a, an organist uh, play, playing, uh, filling in at a church because the organist was away and he was there because the minister was dead or something like that. Uh, one, of those, one of those feeble excuses. Uh, and we travelled back in the train together from Williamstown where the church was and he found out I wasn't a Christian. And uh, Harry had been a missionary in India with Amy Carmichael a hospital chaplain at Velour and a school chaplain at uh, Uttakamund in India, came back because of ill health, was then the chaplain at Malvern Grammar, which was the prep school for Caulfield Grammar, 
but also was a good old-fashioned evangelist. And uh, so he would be seeing young laddies, as he called us, every afternoon after school and then every evening. And anyway, he invited me to his house, uh, opened the Bible, explained the gospel, which I'd never heard before, uh, though I'd been going to church three times a Sunday and reading the Bible every day. No one had ever sat down and said, Jesus died for you. Uh, and I, it, in 20 minutes, I was converted. Uh, because, and, and everything that I'd read and heard suddenly made sense. It was just wonderful. And then uh, Harry, uh, well, he was a great prayer. Uh, and he, what his rule was, if he started praying for you, he wouldn't stop. So you couldn't escape Harry's prayers. Um, well, till he died, of course, then he stopped. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm talking about death so much. <laughs> it's, a, it's a change from talking about taxes, I suppose. Um, uh, but also, he met with me every Tuesday for three years to disciple me, uh, which was a very friendly and generous thing to do, I now think. Um, and it wasn't that he had a kind of book to get through, but I knew he had... And looking back, I can see he had topics to get through. But basically, he'd ask me how I was getting on my Christian life. That would lead into a discussion about how to pray or how to read the Bible or how to witness to your non-Christian friends, how to behave as a Christian to your parents, how to think about your studies, uh, how to think about your life, uh, how to live a pure life. Um, and... It wasn't high pressure kind of, we have to get through these hoops. It was a really friendly, um, un uncle-like discussion about life. And uh, the remarkable thing about Harry was that he had immensely high standards uh, for himself and everybody else. But if, you've, if you'd failed, it, there was no condemnation. It was just, well... What, you, what we have to do now is ask God forgiveness and receive it and then think what can we learn from that and get on. So it was very uh, friendly but very purposeful counselling and mentoring and ultimately mentoring into ministry as well. Yeah, that's right. When, when I hear you talk about Harry and it, it strikes me, I'm, I'm thinking about how, Paul, how the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and Titus and speaks yeah. of them as his true sons yes, or his dear right. sons in the true faith, in right. not sort of um, merely adopted sons or not really sons, but legitimate children. And he yeah. comes to the Corinthian church with gentleness yeah. in manner. Um, as Harry met with you, I mean, it, it, on one level, it seems awfully, if you don't mind me saying, inefficient just for one person just to sit down with another person yes. and open the Bible together. It'd be much easier yeah. to just herd them like cattle into a room and just preach to them in one hit. What, what's the advantage of two people sitting down to open the Bible together as Harry did with you and you've done with others? Yes, that's right. Well, the advantage is that I could be completely open and honest about what was happening. There was no point in hiding because Harry was a very discerning person, whereas in a crowd you can kind of hide, can't you? And it meant that then so the fears I had and the sins I had, we, we talked about them and what to do about them. So uh, you, you, we had that honesty, which is so important. 
and so precious. And I felt, complete, it wasn't, I felt completely safe. I wasn't being manipulated. Uh, I knew he had a genuine concern for my welfare, um, as for many others. So uh, I had the privilege of preaching at his funeral, and there were 250 men in the church, all of whom were Harry's laddies. And his sister is still alive at the age of 95, and I go to visit her. And she's still praying for all Harry's, Harry's laddies, you know. <laughs> Wonderful. One of the other things I think you've mentioned previously uh, to me is that both you and Harry uh, had a shared love for music. Yes. Uh, now, music right. is something that you did before gospel ministry, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's and right. How did, uh, what, what instrument and how, how did that passion develop? Well, apparently the only thing that would shut me up as a baby from crying was classical music. So I heard a lot of it when I was a baby. Uh, and I think music all the time. It's always going through my mind. Yeah, so it was really my, my God before I became a Christian. So my meaning was music. My consolation was music. My destiny was music, really. Um, so then I had to think when I became a Christian, well, what place does it have in my life? And the answer was, of course, second place, <laughs> if not third or fourth. Um, and so the idea of ministry came to me very quickly and uh, indeed I'd thought of it before I got converted because I was such, such a keen Christian and going to church and so on though not knowing what I was doing so I, did, I studied music to fill in time before going to college basically yeah. what, what first made you think about you said you, your heart and mind went towards gospel ministry pretty quickly yeah. what was it that sparked that passion and interest and thought I could actually this is something I would aspire to well it wasn't actually gospel ministry just that I went to an Anglican church and I thought it was rather a nice job because the minister didn't seem to, ver to do very much other than having a cup of tea with people and uh, when he came into church everybody stood up and I thought this is that look, looks really good I'd like that job so it's not the kind of, you know, great call to ministry that you were hoping for. Uh, yeah. Do people still stand up for ministers as they walk in? No, no, these old customs have gone, I'm afraid. That's right. All the perks are gone now. So. <laughs> you, you, went into, you went to train at Ridley College. That's right. When yes. you were there, um, what's maybe one of the key things that you learned when you were at college that shaped you for ministry? Yes, uh, the, the principal of, Lee, uh, of Ridley then was Leon Morris, uh, and he'd written a book on the cross, uh, a number of books on the cross, actually. Uh, the Apostolic Gospel was the main one. Um, and for him, I think the center of Christianity was the cross and the Bible. And I think that's, that's my Christianity as well. I notice that when the cross gets dislodged, <laughs> people fall apart and their ministry falls apart. And when the Bible gets lost, their ministry falls apart as well. So, um, so that that was a great lesson. And he was a great he was a great Bible preacher, Leon. Though he made it look easier than it is. So he'd get up with his Greek old, his Greek New Testament or Hebrew Old Testament and no notes and preach these wonderful sermons. And I thought, you didn't think I could do that. You thought, how does he do it? Uh, he had a photographic memory, could remember everything he'd ever read. Anyway. 
Now, Peter, you've told me a story previously that when you were at Ridley, um, you were maybe not a morning person? Not a morning person, and chapel was every morning at 7 o'clock, which I think is extravagant. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So tell us a bit about what um, getting up in the morning for college was like as an encouragement to some of our uh, young people here who might struggle with mornings as well. Yes, well, I, the rule was that we had to go to chapel twice a day, and you had to apologise in person to the principal if you missed chapel. So There's an idea. Uh, <laughs> so in order to save badgering him, I would go wait till Friday and then knock, knock on his door and say, I've come to apologise for missing chapel on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday morning. <laughs> uh, whereupon he, he had the same reply every time. He had a very funny voice. He would say, have you an effective waking device? <laughs> Which is what ordinary people think of as an alarm clock or something like that. Uh, or a uh, watch. Anyway, yes, Dr. Morris, use it. Thank you, Dr. Morris. Uh, brackets, see you next Friday. <laughs> <laughs> what did ministry look like for you uh, immediately after Ridley in those few years? Well, I had a wonderful time. I went to be an assistant at St. James Ivanhoe, where the minister was a lovely, he and his wife were lovely people. And I hadn't met many Christian men other than Harry. And there were lots of very, very fine Christian men in the congregation, uh, doctors and uh, businessmen and stuff like that. And um, so that was wonderful. Um, I taught divinity at Heidelberg Tech to a group of 80 boys in a classroom that seated 40. And um, that was a bit of a challenge. Um, I, I escaped lynching on one occasion. Uh, and then we had lots of nursing homes in the parish. Uh, so lots of people died. Uh, and so we took five funerals a week. So I got lots of funeral taking experience and lots of visiting old people in old people's homes, which was very, very instructive. Uh, particularly, I think, the people who are kept alive by anger and resentment. It was just terrifying. Somebody would say, you know, boasting, I haven't spoken to my sister for 40 years. And you'd think, is this a good way to live or a good way to die? I mean, it was, it was uh, I learned a lot. Just yeah. picking up on that comment, 40 yeah. years is a very long time. And if, I suppose if you rewind from that person's age, however old it may have been, 40 years, it's not actually far off some of these guys' ages. Yes, right. yeah. How do you think we can age well without bitterness and in yeah. godliness? Sure, that's a great question. Because I suspect it starts yeah. young rather than trying to figure it out when you're older. Yeah, that's right. And one of the most haunting questions I was asked was by a minister at a preaching conference. Uh, and it was, how will I be bitter for eternity because of the pain of gospel ministry? So it's a very big question. Um, and I, I can just give a kind of general outline of an answer. Um, Paul talks in Colossians about forbearing and forgiving. Forbearance is when we put up with things and other people we don't like. Not that they've done them to hurt us, but we just don't like the way they are. 
And forgiveness is when we forgive people who have hurt us intentionally. Uh, and I think they're really important things to learn early on in life because they get harder and harder to do if you, if you put them off. Um, uh, and I think we're, we're developing a society in which people find it hard, very hard to forbear with others. Um, and you have to do that in a marriage. You have to be forbearing. You have to do it in friendships. You have to do it at work. You have to do it at church. And it's the opposite of consumerism, which is I get what I want. Yeah. Well, I suppose it can be very easy in bitterness to hold that in our hearts and rather than forgive and reconcile, we end up just walking away. Yes. But right. we still keep the bitterness in our hearts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I remember a girl at St. Jude's who said, uh, she was in a new member, she said, well, I've joined a home group and we've had some difficulties, by which she meant there was some conflict. So she said, I think I'll just slip away and leave the church and the home group. And I said, dear, if you do that, you'll be slipping away from conflict the rest of your life. Uh, that's not a good way to live. It won't help you at all. So you're right, we're, we're, ma we're making decisions, you're making decisions now for good or ill. Do you know that saying, you know, uh, sow a thought and reap an act, sow an act and reap a habit, sow a habit and reap a character, sow a character and reap a destiny. That is, what you do and think shapes you inevitably. Um, and it's very hard to start forgiving when you've been unforgiving for 40 years. The best place, to, the best time to start is when you're hurt. Yeah. So if we think it's difficult now, it'll get worse. It'll the longer get worse you put it off. That's right. Mm. It's like going to the dentist. Yeah. <laughs> we have some dentists, but they're all at work right sure. now. So all <laughs> <laughs> now, Peter, in the, in the 1970s, you, you moved to Durham uh, to right. yeah. uh, do further study, and you researched uh, the imitation of Christ in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Um, what did you learn from that? Sure. Uh, well, I got onto the subject because I'd been studying 1 Peter, uh, where Peter encourages us to follow Christ's example. And I thought it would be good to look at a 20th century, because it was the 20th century at the time, person who'd done that and see how he put it into practice. And he wrote about it as well in, in his theological books uh, and pastoral books. Um, I think it taught me, doing a doctorate uh, taught me how to research something, how to think deeply about something. Uh, and it, it also helped me to see that imitating Christ is based on the fact that we're made in God's image, that's the start of it. So then imitating Christ is an appropriate thing to do. And despite our sinfulness, God is transforming us into Christ's image, Paul says, day by day, uh, from one degree of glory to another. So what God is doing on the inside, then, is what we do on the outside by following Christ. And I did it also because 
you know, following Christ, imitating Christ's service of others, and imitating Christ's forgiving of others, I think was part of Christianity in the 19th century, but not so much in the 20th century. So one of Bonhoeffer's uh, famous say sayings is, when, when Christ calls someone, he calls him to come and die, that is, take up a cross. Well, I think most people think of Christianity as a way of finding happiness. Uh, but it struck me that was fairly superficial. And for many Christians in the world would be, a, I mean, if you, are, if you told a person facing martyrdom in Pakistan today that becoming a Christian will make you more happy, I think they'd probably wonder if you were, you know, in cloud cuckoo land. Um, so that whole idea of being conformed to Christ and his sufferings was absent, I think, from Christianity, and so I wanted to find out how someone put it into practice. Yeah. That, that's actually a fascinating thought when you think about what we aspire to in life. That so often we say, parents will say of their children, we just want you to be happy. That's uh, right. Or what is it that, and, and many of us are going through a transition point in life as we think about what will work and marriage and family look like. Yeah. I think happiness is the, the cultural default. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you think the Bible commends as actually the right goal of our ambition, if not a superficial happiness? Well, it is true happiness, which is the blessing of being in fellowship with God. But I think, as I, I mentioned uh, in answer to a question this morning, that, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to serve God and money. Well, the reason we want money is for the sake of happiness. That's the big God we're serving. I read a wonderful story of a, a lady in uh, Queensland who took part in a marathon, which is the kind of thing I often do uh, first thing in the morning before I get up. Um, uh, anyway, she was running in a marathon and she only wanted to run a half marathon, but she by, by mistake took the wrong turning uh, and run the whole marathon by mistake and won it, which I, which I thought was pretty smooth. I think that's pretty cool, really. Um, but it struck me that most, most Christians are running the happiness marathon, not the ha holiness marathon. So our main, our main preoccupation is how can I be a happier Christian, not how can I be a holier Christian. Now, uh, it's worth thinking about happiness, but it's far more important to think about holiness. So. Um, I often ask, uh, the, I particularly mentor ministers, you know, what sins are you putting to death at present? Not because I want to know the answer, but because I want to know that they are putting sins to death every day, which is what every believer should be doing, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, what was the question again? Yeah, I think we should be pursuing holiness, not happiness. C.S. Lewis points out that happiness is a byproduct. If you make it the thing you search for, it becomes more and more elusive. Because imagine you save up all your life to go on a holiday to Bali or something like that uh, for, the, for the ultimate happy, happy moment. You get there and get a tummy bug and you spend the whole time on the toilet. Well, I mean, would that not be a disaster? And, uh, you know, people, my contemporaries who aren't Christians are 
and they've got a bucket list of things they must do to fulfill their happiness before they die, as if they have to get everything in this life. But actually, we should be living for the next life, not this life. Yeah. And contentment is that wonderful assurance that we don't have to get it all in this life because we know that in the end, right. we do get it all in Christ. Yeah, right. And so there's a, it, it, there's a remarkable freedom with how we live. That's right. That's right. Mm. So, and I think older people are generally discontented. So one of my, my prayers has been that I'll be a contented old person, not a grumpy one. Oh, I can do grumpy if you'd like me to. That's right. Content is good. Uh, <laughs> now, Peter, talking about happiness and decisions that we make along the way, yeah. um, is it, you were quite happy when you were at Durham teaching theology, and yes. the idea of coming back to take a parish in Melbourne... Was the last thing I wanted to do, yes. <laughs> and yet you came. So how did, how did that happen? I mean, you were offered a... The Archbishop offered you an appointment at St Jude's. That's right. But you were very happy in Durham. Yes. So why in the world would you come to take that parish appointment at Melbourne? Well, I made a big mistake. You see, I, <laughs> I decided that I'd write and say no because I didn't want to do it. Then I thought... Perhaps I should pray before I write the letter. And uh, I, this is only the only time I've ever had kind of direct guidance from God about what to do next. Uh, but God said to me, this is my gift. So I thought, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there are some gifts of God that we don't want, though. Yes, exactly. Right. So how do you receive a gift from God that you just don't want? Uh, expecting to find that God will do something good through it and that might be for you, it might be for other people yeah it's so easy for us to think I had my plan and if it's not my plan then it must be bad, that's right. but then we fail to see how God's plans are better Yes, that's yeah. Right. Yeah. when you were at St. Jude's you committed yourself to the task of expository preaching or preaching through books of the Bible. Yes, that's right, um, I did. Yeah. I think, how many months in Hebrews? Uh, well, it was nine months, but it was three three-month blocks, so okay. there was a little holiday in between. Yes, there was... Something frivolous like Leviticus or something like yes, that. that. <laughs> <laughs> if I want frivolous, that's exactly where I go. So, uh, um, I, I, if I remember... Now, you, you may know this, but I, I, I read somewhere that the longest... That William Googe, a Puritan, preached 36 years on Hebrews or something. He like did. That. He did. Yes. yes, that's right. And people would have died halfway through his yes, series. Yes, they would. And, and that's he, right. He had, he had to not in the sermon, but yeah. you know, and he'd have to print them so people could catch up. That's right. Um, yeah, that's right. So maybe not 36 years in one book, but but why expository preaching? I think in Melbourne, historically, preaching through books of the Bible has not been a norm, and I think we we tend to go towards topical preaching much more. Yeah. What are the advantages of expository preaching through yes. the Bible. Well, the preaching of which I was brought up was verse, a verse out of context preaching. So a verse from Chronicles in the morning, a verse from John at night. So when I went to college, if you'd asked me uh, who came first, Abraham or David, well, I had no idea because I didn't have a Bible overview, which is what you get when you take verses out of context. Um, uh, the, the reason for doing expository preaching is that the unit of verbal revelation is not a verse from a book, but the book itself, like Ecclesiastes or James. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's actually 
what most people call the text. <laughs> so the text is the whole book, not a little bit of a book. Uh, and each text, each book of the Bible has its own meaning and purpose. And it's very hard to understand any part of it if we don't understand what the whole book is about. Um, so I, I, I don't always find commentaries are very helpful in this matter because they, they often get too focused on the twigs and don't look at the whole tree. Um, so when I prepare a expository series, what I do is read the book, the Bible book, again and again and again until I can work out what the main purpose of the book is, what it's trying to achieve, and then how each bit fits into that purpose. Yeah. It seems to me that God didn't, God didn't give us a dictionary of useful verses out of context. He gave us a book made up of books. So that's the best way to preach it. You've had a commitment to the Bible over so many years in life and ministry. Um, but in many ways, I suspect, it's easy for us as Christians to prioritise other things as means of knowing God. So when we think about how can I... I just find a very instructive question is, how do you meet God? Yeah. Uh, and the idea of meeting God in the Bible might seem pretty foreign to some of us and to many people, I suspect, that we would, we would value other means of communing with God, however that would be, what are we at risk of, or what are the easy go-tos of relating to God instead of the Scriptures? Uh, well, I think fellowship is often one, so I'll chat with my, non, with my Christian friends and then I'll feel close to God. Uh, worship is another, so I'll go along and worship God. We'll sing lots of songs and worship God and then that'll be good enough. And I suppose, you know, meeting God in nature would be another thing which people do. Um, uh, but I, lo I love the quotation from John uh, James Stewart who wrote in 1970 without the Bible the, ima the imagined Christ no, the remembered Christ becomes the imagined Christ shaped by our own needs and desires and so on if you, if you don't read the Bible and just chat with your friends the Christ you're celebrating is the one you have in common with them which will be, that'll be a limited vision of Christ. Uh, and if you lose yourself in worship, that's, that's a great, it's great to worship God, but you're not learning about who God is in the process. Uh, I love enjoying God in nature, and uh, uh, that's a big part of my life, but it doesn't teach me the specifics about who God is and what God requires of me. That's right. So... It, it makes sense, doesn't it? You get to know someone by listening to their words. It's backed up by their life, but actually you need to hear them talk, hear their words to know what they're like. Otherwise, you don't know what they're like. Peter, I know that over the last few weeks, um, the whole issue of the Ravi Zachariah scandal has been difficult uh, for Christians right around the world to process um, and to think through, how do you, how should we think about it, and how do you, how do you persevere well as a Christian? So I think they're two separate questions, but I think the first one is, how should we think about significant Christian leaders who may not, who, who fall and simply yeah, do not yeah. persevere? And I think secondarily, then, how should we persevere as Christians? Yes, I have such uh, a deep view of human depravity and sin 
which remains even in believers and even in ministers, that I'm not surprised when something like that happens. I'm sad to say it, but uh, uh, I think we, we can underestimate our capacity for sin. The trouble with sin is that sin always blinds us to its presence. So uh, the first time you commit a sin, you're then more likely to commit it the next time because you're less aware that it is a sin. Uh, and the human heart is deceitful, Jeremiah 17. Sin is deceitful, uh, Hebrews uh, 3. And Satan is the deceiver in Revelation. So, And the point of deception is you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's happening, yeah. exactly right. Uh, and I, I mean, I must admit, there are some sins I don't commit I think only because I'm frightened of meeting the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment. Uh, as Paul says, we appear before the judgment seat of Christ and I think, well, I'll look pretty stupid. Um, uh, when I was, uh, I think, at St. Jude's, uh, there was a guy called Roy, Roy Clements whom I'd, who was a great preacher whom I'd heard many times and read his books and he was discovered to be leaving, leading a hypocritical life. And I was very, very discour immensely discouraged by that. And a friend of mine was, uh, was trying to help me, and he said, well, if you're discouraged by those who give up, think how encouraged you are by those who keep going. That was a wonderful, a wonderful piece of advice. So I then made it my practice to thank God for those Christian ministers I knew who kept going in, in Christian ministry and those Christians I knew who kept living the Christian life. And I do what Paul does, you know, he says, you know, whenever he writes, he says, well, I thank God for you and I'm praying for you. So whenever I pray for people, I thank God for them first and that inspires my prayers. So I'm immensely encouraged by Christians who keep going as Christians. I'm talking to a, a young minister at present who's in deep trouble, but is trying to live as a Christian in the midst of it. And I keep saying to him, I'm so encouraged by you that you aren't giving up. So he feels he's failing, I think, he's a wonderful example of keeping going as a believer. Um, to answer your second question, uh, we need to make ourselves open and accountable to others. Uh, so uh, we need to tell people what our deepest temptations are uh, and ask them to pray and give them permission to ask us about them. So um, uh, I have a difficulty with alcohol, so my friends know about that. Uh, and they're free to ask me at any time whether I'm keeping to my limit alcohol rule or breaking it. And that keeps me sober, well, sober-minded anyway. Uh, and then I have to maintain strict discipline over myself as well, of course. It's interesting, isn't it, because we in hearing a weekend all about God's words, it may be easy to think, well, if I've got the Bible, yeah. I can read it myself in my room or with hand-picked friends. That's right, yeah. But, not, but it's all on my terms, really. What's, what's wrong with handling the Bible in that way, or a really individualised manner? Well, sin deceives us. So um, Hebrews encourage one another daily list one of you by one of you by oh no don't what it is Hebrews 3 
one of those Bible verses. I have no memory for the Bible. I was once leading a service in England in the Lord's Prayer, and I got lost halfway through and had God giving us our daily bread as we give daily bread to those who sin against us. <laughs> and uh, the people obviously thought uh, this was a colonial, you know, who didn't know the proper Lord's Prayer that they knew. Let me find it. Uh, watch out, brothers and sisters, that none of you... Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that you won't be any, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That's what he thinks is inside the believer, an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. We become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end. So I need other believers to exhort me. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 3, the word of Christ dwells in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So the word of Christ dwells not with, richly not with ever longer sermons, but with a ministry of mutual encouragement. And I think Australian Christians are very bad at that. We're good, bad at challenging each other. So I've challenged two ministers recently on the matter of alcohol, and they've been, <laughs> they've been very cold for the next six months which shows how fragile our friendships are if they won't take a rebuke. But the Bible, Proverbs says that a fool doesn't take advice and a wise person accepts rebuke. But we need it not just from our friends who know us who are likely to think like we do, we need it from ministers who don't know us as well. Uh, and, you know, other Bible book, other, our own Bible reading and perhaps meeting Christians from another culture who might well question the way we function and operate and assume that we can live the Christian life. Yeah, I was, I was reading Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he said, um, yeah. the word of God is always true, but it does take on somewhat of a special resonance when it comes in the mouth of a brother or sister yeah. who loves us that's and right. speaks it to us. Right. Yeah. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So I, I would encourage you, you know, if you see a Christian friend who's you know, hanging on to resentment or being grumpy or something like that, uh, do speak to them about it. They may not welcome it, uh, but it's, it's a good thing to do. We, we have a saying in Australia, fences make good neighbours, but actually love makes better neighbours. Yeah. Yeah. And we should love people enough to want to care for them and risk the friendship. Well, as we wrap up this part of today, it just strikes me, some of the things that we've talked about is that hard decisions today work for our joy yeah, in eternity. That's right. Yeah. Killing sin today works for yeah, our joy right. in eternity. Right. Killing bitterness today works for our joy in older yeah, life. That's right. Um, yeah, that's killing right. sin in, in each other's lives works for each other's joy together. Yes, that's, right. Um, that's right. It's not easy, but yeah. that's... I, it's a, as we'll see tomorrow, that God's word is written for his people, yeah, that's uh, right. not just for us individually. Yeah. I just say about this minister who asked me if he'd be bitter for eternity? Mm. Yes. My reply was, when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, all the pain will disappear based on 
God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's right. Yeah. That's wonderful. Let me pray. Let me pray. Gracious God, we know that you are faithful to your every promise. And we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ you have kept that promise. And in his spirit you continue to fulfill those promises each day by preserving us, growing us in, growing us in holiness, putting sin to death in us, deepening our joy and maximizing our love for you. We praise you, God, for uh, the gift of salvation that you've given to our brother Peter. We praise you as well for how you've grown him, sanctified him, continue to use him for life and ministry, to be a blessing to so many in Melbourne, in Australia and around the world. We praise you, God, that he is a faithful servant uh, of, your, of your son, that he submits himself to the scriptures and seeks to make your word fully known. We pray, God, that we might look to him as we look to uh, other godly examples of um, faithful endurance and perseverance and so for many of us that we might persevere well as well we're asking your kindness that you might continue to use peter for a great many years of uh, ministry and service to strengthen your church by your word and we pray your continual blessings on this weekend as we meet and gather and think about your word not just for ourselves but for us as a church family May we make hard decisions today around your word for our final and eternal joy in your son. Mm. Please, God, do these things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.